Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against, his, against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wonderful and the magnificent God that you are. Lord, even though you are high and exalted, you do regard the lowly and the humble. Lord, you know our hearts, and we ask that you would purge all pride and haughtiness from them that we would have humble and contrite hearts before you, our holy God. Let us give thanks to you, Lord, with our whole heart and praise your name. And we thank you for your steadfast faithfulness and love. Lord, you are there whenever we call upon you. And again, you are faithful beyond all measure. Whenever we are in trouble, you preserve us, and your, and your powerful, outstretched hand is always there for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it is, and that it does teach us and reprove us and show us who you truly are. Lord, we thank you for Eric. We thank you for the message that he has prepared today. We pray your spirit upon him that the message that he does bring will be your true words for us, your people. Again, we thank you, we praise you, and we ask your presence in this hour. Thank you, Jesus, for in your name we pray. Amen. It is an honor to be with you this morning and uh, to be able to open God's word together. It was back in May, I had the privilege of uh, meeting your pastor and... um, connecting with him in Washington, D.C., of all places. And uh, I think God kind of did something in each one of our hearts in just the short uh, time that we had together in D.C. And uh, it's been a joy and a, and, a, and a privilege to get to meet uh, Lucy and to spend uh, several days with Chandler and Annalise and Caroline and Brendan. And, uh, and uh, we have our youngest with us. Our older three are with my family in Michigan uh, where the weather is not so good, and um, it's been a joy to be with you, and uh, looking forward to this time together. We, as a local church there in Dayton, Ohio, pray for your church regularly, and um, pray that God would bless your church and would bless the gospel ministry of this church, and uh, that God would powerfully use this church in Fredericksburg community and beyond uh, throughout uh, this region in Texas and uh, really the world for his glory and for his renown. And it's been great to hear some of the ways that he is doing that already over the last several days and the rich heritage 
that this church is built upon that, that the Lord is kind of using to position you and, and to, uh, to bless the world through the cause of Christ. Hopefully you have found your way to Acts chapter 9. If you would, put your finger in Acts chapter 9 and then you're going to want to turn to the right to Philippians chapter 3. Appreciated our brother reading Acts chapter 9 and that is the, the text where we'll be spending a good portion of our time together. Uh, however, Acts chapter 9 really records the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And what I want to do is to kind of uh, go ahead in time and to read a portion from Philippians chapter 3 in which Saul will essentially recount his conversion story and then we'll go back to Acts chapter 9, we'll look at his conversion story and then we'll go back to Philippians chapter 3 at the end. So if I have confused you thoroughly, I think my job is done. We're going to be in Philippians 3, Acts chapter 9 and we're going to go back to Philippians chapter 3 at the end and uh, I want to do that because I want to not only see the narrative of what happened to Saul, but I also want to see kind of the autobiography of Saul recounting why he believed that happened and what the conversion meant for him. So let's look at Philippians chapter 3. Follow along as I read. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Father, this morning I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you. We pray with the psalmist that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your law. May we not only obey it, but may we delight in it. In Jesus' name, the church agreed and said, amen, amen. I wanted to start in Philippians chapter three because I want you to see the context in which Paul places his conversion story. And Philippians is a letter that Paul would write to the church at Philippi about the year 60 A.D., Uh, In the church at Philippi, many of the people were struggling with what we would loosely call today legalism. They were trying to figure out what it looked like to be non-Jews who were living as Christians in a religion that had its roots in Judaism. So they were trying to figure out, okay, what, what does that mean for the way in which we go through our lives, the way in which we live every single day? In the New Testament, circumcision was a physical sign for God's people. And yet in the New Testament, physical circumcision for God's people, the church, is done away with. In fact, Romans 2.29 teaches us that circumcision now is a circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh. In fact, if you look at this third verse in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, but we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. So you can clearly see that what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to write to his church, this church in Philippi that's struggling with with what does it look like to be not a Jew but in a a quote-unquote Jewish faith religion. How Jewish do we have to be to actually be a Christian? And he's saying, don't put your confidence in the flesh. Don't put your confidence in some sort of physical action 
But you need to put your confidence in Christ. You need to put a conf- your confidence in the Holy Spirit that he's given to you. So Paul has taught the church this. And then Paul goes away. And in his absence, other teachers, false teachers, have come in and started teaching the people, again, that they need to be physically circumcised. So put yourself in Paul's position for just a moment. You've labored, you've helped to plant this church in Philippi, you've helped to teach them right truth, right doctrine, and you go away to begin planting other churches and kind of go about missionary endeavors in the region, and then in your absence, false teachers come in and begin to infiltrate the church and begin to once again teach false doctrine. Paul's point here, once again, just so that it's crystal clear, is that the circumcision of the heart is what counts, not what something does to their body. In fact, he goes on to prove this point by essentially stating that if anyone could rest or trust in or give confidence to what they have physically done, it would be me, Paul says. Follow on from there, verse 4. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. In fact, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to the zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. You begin to see what he's doing. He's kind of giving them his, his pedigree, his background, his academic accolades. I was, I was a Jew of, of Jews. I was a Pharisee. I was a zealot. I was a persecutor of the church. I was blameless according to the righteousness of the law. But, verse 7, whatever I gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's point, I was a better Jew than anyone else, and yet even that could not save me. Everything I did to merit God's favor did absolutely nothing to bring me closer to God. I wonder if Saul lived today what he would have written. As to church attendance, uninterrupted for decades. As to Bible memorization, gold star in Sunday school class. As to tithing, 20% every week. As to sharing the gospel with everyone I met. And we keep on and on and on. Read through the Bible every year. Bible reading program achieved. I mean, layer upon layer upon layer of things that Paul could have cited All good things, all helpful things, all beneficial things, and yet all things that go bad when we begin to trust them as the motive or the merit for our salvation. When we begin to put our faith more and more in the fact that, well, you know what, I'm I'm the most regular member of Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship. Or you know what, I give an awful lot to the church. Or you know what, I'm... I've been without, without interruption in my morning Bible reading plan for months now. Again, all good things, but things that are utterly dangerous when we begin to trust in those as the means of our salvation or uh, the merit upon which God should rightly save us. 
And it's easy to do, isn't it, friends? It's easy to begin over time as we walk with the Lord to begin to think, well, you know what? God's pretty lucky to have me on his team. I know that I'm saved by grace. I know that I bring no merit to the table. It's only God's electing power alone. But really, God, when you consider all the people in my community or all the people that live on my street or all the people in my school or all the people in my church, I, I, I know that you're pretty lucky to have me. Flip back now to Acts chapter 9. I'm going to kind of hold on to that thought. If Paul in his credentials weren't good enough to get right with God, then how did it happen? How was Paul saved? And how do we have any hope in ourselves? Because it's easy to read Paul now through the lens of 2,000 years on, through the lens of the rest of the New Testament, and to look at kind of him going over his accolades and think, well, of course those aren't the merit or the means of your salvation. And yet if you were living in Paul's day, if you were a devout, faithful Jew, you would have looked at Paul or looked at Saul and said, well, if anyone is right with God, this guy is right with God. Paul's motivation for doing what he did was obedience to God. And so lest we too quickly point the finger at at Saul for what he was doing, let's go back and look at how God saved him. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I want to read this again. I know it was read earlier. I want to read it again just so that we're, we're hearing God's word once again. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. I want to give you a a statement here, I want to submit to you this morning that Saul should not have been saved. Saul should not have been saved. There are at least three big reasons why Saul should not have been saved, all right? So if you're taking notes this morning, three reasons why Saul should not have been saved. Number one, Saul's past. Think about Saul's past for a minute. Not only the stuff we read in Philippians, but just look across the page, if your Bible's like mine, at Acts chapter 7, verses 58 and following. Acts chapter 7, verses 58 and following. And what we're going to jump into is the very kind of, the apex of the moment in which Stephen is about to be stoned as the first Christian martyr in the church. So verse 58, they cast him, Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not withhold this sin against them. And when he had said this, 
he fell asleep. And Saul, yes, friends, the same Saul that was converted in Acts chapter 9, yes, the same Saul that we just read about, Philippians chapter 3, was there approving of his execution. Saul's past was atrocious. The question may not even be, how could God forgive someone as bad as Saul? The question may be, why would God want to? Does that ring any bells today? What if God, in an act of unmerited favor and grace, decided and chose to save Kim Kim Jong-un? Or what if God decided to save Vladimir Putin? Or you just kind of fill in the blank of your evil world dictator person. Think of someone in your own life who has been the cause of pain for you. What if God decided to save them? The friend who stabbed you in the back. Girlfriend, boyfriend who broke up with you when you thought that you were going to get married. The employer who fired you unexpectedly without just cause. The child who turned their back on you. The sibling who's kind of disowned the family. I mean, let's face it. Saul would have serious hurdles to get over if he is going to minister to Christians. God should not have saved Saul. Saul would have been the last person qualified to turn around and go back to minister to Christians. And you think for a moment about people who have been through traumatic events as the result of maybe another human. You think in those situations, sometimes just the mention of that person's name kind of brings back all of these negative emotions. And so now apply that to these Christians in the early church and Saul. Undoubtedly, some of the Christians that will have to welcome Saul into the church are the very ones who have their loved ones killed at the hands of Saul. Can you imagine welcoming into church fellowship the one who killed your daughter or your father or your best friend? And yet, isn't that what the church should do? I mean, isn't that what the church is about? And another thing about Saul's past, why would a guy like that, who is so poorly connected in the Christian movement, be someone that God would want to save anyway? There had to have been other Jews whom God could have saved that were more at least respected among the Christians, or more well connected among the Christians. Why in the world would God save a guy like Saul? Second reason why Saul should not have been saved Look at verse 1. Saul's life was not cleaned up. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. What is the third word in your Bible? But Saul, what? You can go ahead and say it out loud, sorry. I, I know I'm a guest preacher, so you're not used to me. What, what is the third word? Just go ahead and say it out loud. Still. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
How much time was there between Saul acting out his murderous plot to kill Christians and his conversion? A few years? A few months? A few weeks? A few days? A few hours? Saul was still, he was in the process of of torturing, of, of brutalizing, of abusing, of persecuting the Christians when God saved him. In that very moment. How much time was there between Saul acting out his murderous plot to kill Christians and his conversion? We don't know exactly, but it wasn't much. How much time does there have to be? How long does someone need to spend trying to clean up their act before they're ready to be saved? Or how much cleanup needs to take place before they're saved? Friend, Saul's life was not cleaned up at all. He was right in the middle of his sin when God saved him. Can God do that? I mean, doesn't there have to be some sort of buffer between utter sinful living and then Christianity? I mean, doesn't there have to be some sort of kind of neutral ground, no man's land, in which we cross from our sinfulness to somehow trying to clean up our life a little bit and then being ready to be saved? Saul didn't have that. Thus, God should not have saved Saul. Third reason God should not have saved Saul. Saul's questions were not all answered. If you just scan your eyes, beginning in verse 3 of Acts chapter 9, kind of down all the way really to, really verse 19, you'll notice that Saul asks one question. Really, he speaks once. And that is to ask, who are you, Lord? And then Jesus reveals himself to Saul, and thereafter we don't have Saul uttering really any words. He's not asking any questions from here on out. Saul was saved when God revealed to him the person and the glory of Jesus, but undoubtedly Saul still had lots of questions. So why in the world was Saul saved? Shouldn't he have waited until he had all of his questions answered in a way that made sense to him, all the pieces kind of put in place before he could live as a Christian? I mean, true, Jesus revealed his glory to Saul, and true, Saul was blind for a while, but Saul could have gone back to his old ways, or he could have at least kind of hit the pause button on his Killing Christians tour to spend some time in some further study before kind of really fully committing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, that would make sense. But he didn't have all of his questions answered. Certainly everything did not in that moment make complete sense to him. In fact, we read that later on, Saul goes into the wilderness for years to study and pray and, and, and arguably to kind of begin to put all of these pieces together. Okay, all of my rich Jewish background, all of my understanding the Old Testament, how does that, how does that compute with what Christ has now revealed to me about himself? But in that moment, all of that wasn't coming together. You know, one of the amazing things about the Bible, friends, is that the Bible reveals to us ultimate reality. It sweeps past our preconceived ideas. It disarms our defenses, tosses aside our opinions about what should be or could be or ought to be. And what we have in the Bible is revealed truth from God. 
Whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, whether it makes sense or not, all of that is secondary. God's truth is primary. And the truth is that God did save Saul. We might think that Saul should not have been saved from our perspective. We might be right in our own opinion. But our perspective is always severely nearsighted. If you'd been standing there that day as one of Saul's traveling companions, you might have thought, certainly not Saul. But God in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, in his providence, makes no mistakes. The reality is that God saved Saul, and since God is always right, he was right to save Saul. So Acts chapter 9 then delivers to us, reveals to us some ultimate truth about God and about humanity and about salvation. And what I want to do now is kind of in the rest of our time together give you three of those things. So three revealed truths that we find in Acts chapter 9 relating to Saul's conversion that apply directly to God's work converting sinners today. Number one, And this should be obvious. Salvation is God's work. Look again, Acts chapter 9, verse 3. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. In fact, if you skip down to verse 15... God speaking to a believer named Ananias who was told to go and to pray for Saul that he might receive his sight. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, to Ananias, go for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. So let me ask you a question. How much of Saul's salvation did Saul control none of it he only responded to the work that God already did friends salvation is the same way because salvation is God's work God chose Saul God called Saul God even revealed to Ananias that hey Saul is my chosen messenger he's going to do the work that I have prepared before him beforehand for him to do for him to walk in Which begs the the question this morning, how do I know if God has saved me? If salvation is God's work, it's not something that I work up to or work into or work through. So just a little parenthetically, a bit about my background. Uh, I grew up in a a very strong free will home, free will church, free will background, served, ministered for a number of years. So God began to open my eyes to this reality that salvation is the work of the Lord and not of the work of, of a human being getting all the pieces together and just right and kind of figuring it out and making sense. And that one day when we stand before the Lord and he says, why, why are you a Christian? Why are you a believer? I'm not going to be able to say, well, you know what? I began to figure that all out. I had the right background, the right education, the right reading, the right seminary, the right all these things. And it just kind of, all of a sudden it just clicked for me and it made sense. But in that moment, what I or you or anyone else will be able to say is it is only by your selection, it is only by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, it is only by grace 
that I am saved, and it is not a work of myself. It is a gift of God so that I might not boast, but only boast in the cross of Christ. So how do you know if God has saved you? Do you cling to the cross of Christ for your salvation alone? Do you trust that it is Jesus who has saved you, not through your merit, not through your work? Do you affirm the truth of the gospel found in scripture? Do you delight, take joy in Jesus Christ and his word? Is there fruit in your life? Is there the confirmation of your brothers and sisters around you? Yeah, we see evidence, we see signs, we see fruit in your life. You're gonna hear this afternoon at the the members meeting some of that fruit. You're gonna see some of that evidence. It's one of the, the glorious things about members meetings, members gatherings, is you're able to hear that, you're able to see that, you're able to affirm one another. I see fruit in your life. I see evidence of, of changes in your life. I wanna affirm that and encourage that. I wanna correct, I wanna challenge, I wanna push back on areas where I don't see fruit, where I have issues to be concerned. How do you know if God is saving you even this morning? Maybe you're here, not maybe, I'm sure you're here, someone's here this morning who is not a Christian. And maybe you're trusting in your church attendance or you're trusting in your from the Bible belt or you're trusting in the fact that your parents were believers, that you own a Bible or that you read a Bible or that you give to a church. Friends, the Bible is quite clear that God who created all things is holy and just and deserves the full allegiance of his creation. And yet our foreparents chose to rebel against God, chose to want to be God, to want to define good and evil. And therefore, when they turned their back on God and sin, they rightly incurred, rightly brought on themselves God's wrath. They brightly brought about the wages, the consequences, the results of their sin. And the Bible says the wages of that sin is death. And lest we point the finger too much at Adam and Eve, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God justly, rightly should punish us. There's nothing we can do about it. We can't fix ourselves. We can't fix the problem. We can't change it on our own. And yet, God in Christ, the the two words in Ephesians chapter two that Martin Lloyd-Jones said are the most beautiful two words in all of scripture, but God, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were alienated from, from God in Christ, made us alive together with Christ, for it is by grace that we have been saved, not as a result of works, but it is a gift of God. And so God sent Jesus God provided what he demands, what he expects, what he requires, and that is perfection. And Jesus lived the perfect life. He was the perfect righteous sacrifice. And then he was our substitute. He took our place and died in our place for our sin on the cross. Not to give us the potential to be saved, but to save. And he opens our eyes in his perfect providence, in his perfect timing, opens our eyes to our need of salvation and sin. And that, that eye-opening experience may come as a child. It may come as an adult. It may come when you hit rock bottom in your life and you have nowhere else to turn and nothing else to do. It may come in a moment when, in, when everything you have achieved, set out to achieve, you have achieved and you found that it's empty and hollow. And God reveals to you your sin. That sounds like awful bad news. 
But it's awfully good news because it is in Christ that our sin has been nailed to the cross. that The punishment has been paid. And we are made alive together with Jesus Christ. That his resurrection from the dead is our resurrection from the dead. His life is our life. And friend, if you are here this morning and you have not turned from your sin, you've not repented, you've not trusted in that gospel. The Bible calls it repenting, turning away from from sin. And we could talk about a lot of sins and we can repent for hours of all of our sin. The, The primary sin that we are repenting of in conversion is the sin of unbelief. It's turning, trusting in Jesus Christ that I cannot save myself, but that Jesus has saved me. Friend, I would encourage you to repent this morning of your sin, to turn from that sin. I would encourage you afterwards to talk to your pastor, talk to someone you saw on the platform this morning. Talk to one of the other members of the church. Talk to someone who was a greeter. Have them pray with you. How do we know that God will save our friend, our family member, our spouse, our child, our parent? Well, the Bible doesn't give us a list of those whom God will save. It would be nice if he did, right? I mean, we could just look through there. Oh, your name's on the list. Oh, sorry, your name's not on the list. But to his glory, he does not give us that. But the Bible does set forward for us that we are to preach the gospel, we are to speak the gospel, we are to share the gospel because it's the tool, it's the means, it's the mechanism by which God saves sinners. We're to preach, we're to pray for conversion, we're to pray that God would save our family members and our coworkers and our classmates and our friends and our neighbors. And then we are to pattern the gospel. We're to live in such a way that we are an advantage to the gospel. We point people in the direction of Christ, knowing that to some that will be a, the, the smell of sweet incense of life, and to some it will be the stench of death. But make no mistake, when non-Christians and Christians alike come across your life, there should be a distinction. There should be a one or the other response, and not some sort of just lukewarm, like I have no idea where they stand, I have no idea what they believe, I don't know if they're a Christian, they're not. Salvation is God's work. Secondly, salvation, or excuse me, God saves the most unlikely people God saves the most unlikely of people Saul obviously was unlikely to be saved in fact Ananias in verses 13 and 14 I can't wait one day to meet Ananias because this this poor brother is seeking to follow the Lord and be faithful and he's praying one day in his his house and then he gets this task that I can't imagine too many of us today would have, would have wanted if, if all of a sudden God said to us, you know, the most notorious terrorist you can think of that kills Christians with utter disregard for their life. I want you to go and I want you to pray in the name of Jesus for this brother. And we might sit here and think, oh, send me, Lord. That's me. But if I were to be honest with you, I don't know how I would receive that. I don't know that my first response would be, oh, that sounds great. In fact, if you look at Ananias' response in verse 13, Ananias answered and said, Lord, I have heard much from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority of the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Kind of picture Ananias. We don't know this from Scripture, so this is just purely conjecture. Kind of picture Ananias kind of... um, hesitant right kind of the I I get kind of the porky pig personality like uh, oh you know like that's not porky pig that's someone else that's Winnie the Pooh or something 
but this kind of personality, like, ah, I'm not sure, like, are you really sure? Like, God, in, in re, almost reminding God, like, are you sure this is, this is Saul. Remember, he's the, he's the terrorist. This is Saul. He's, far, he's the enemy, God. Like, are you, you sure this is really what you want me to do? Much like, remember Jonah when God called him and said, I want you to go to Nineveh? Jonah's saying, are you sure Nineveh? They're, they're the ones who've mocked your people and rebelled against your people and hate your people. God saves the most unlikely people. But let's be honest. People only appear to be less likely to be saved because we forget our own need of salvation. Apart from Jesus, we are all a bunch of convicts walking to death row, taking consolation maybe in the fact that we're not quite as vile as the guy in front of us. Reality is not one single person in this room this morning was a likely candidate for salvation. None of us in the annals of the yearbooks of time had underneath our name most likely to be saved. Aside from that, there are people who seem to us much further away from God. Maybe it's a parent that's so resistant to the faith and you try to talk about the Lord and they immediately shut you up or shut you down. Maybe it's a coworker that is so backstabbing and unethical that you, you're just amazed every single day at their corruption. Or maybe it's a neighbor that seems to make his or her highest ambition to just destroy any sort of peace or joy you have in your life. Can God save them? We believe that he can and we believe that he does. And if we really believe that, then our churches ought to reflect that, correct? Our churches ought to be a, a, much like the island of misfit toys, right? People who were least likely to be saved, a, a bunch of misfits, hodgepodge people that, and for whom maybe their only source of affinity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll, I'll often tell our church back in Dayton, you know, look around for a minute and they'll kind of look around and I'll say, you realize that, that if we just had any other reason but the gospel that we were called to meet together, we probably wouldn't even meet together because we come from different backgrounds, we're different races, we're different ethnicities, different socioeconomic classes, different educational levels, different thoughts, different political views, different sports team allegiances, all kinds of crazy different things. And yet the one thing that binds us together is the one thing that ought to bind the church together and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, an unbelieving world, an unbelieving Fredericksburg, an unbelieving Texas, an unbelieving world looks at a church like this and says, why is it that this person and that person and this person and that person are together? Why is it that they worship together? Why is it that they're in one another's homes, that they're inviting people over and sharing meals together and wanting to spend time together and wanting to do life and they're caring for each other and helping each other out and encouraging and challenging each other? Why? And it gives us a perfect opportunity to say it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That in Christ there is no Jew, nor Greek, nor male, nor female, nor slave, nor free. What Paul was saying is, is not, there aren't distinctions that are important, but what he is saying that in Christ we are all made one. We're brought together. That's what the church exists for. That's what the church is about. And then finally, number three, 
we see in this text that salvation is seeing Jesus for who he is and what he's done and seeing myself for who I am and what I have done. So when Christ reveals himself to Saul, Saul falls to the ground, he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Just parenthetically, and I'm sure you've seen this before, but this was huge when I saw this for the first time. If you look at the the last word of verse four is that me, and you think, well, wait a minute, Saul wasn't actually persecuting Jesus. Jesus had already ascended before Paul's persecution even began. He wasn't persecuting Jesus. You know what's being talked about there is the church. It's the body of Christ. Saul is persecuting the body of Christ and Jesus so identifies with his body, with his bride, that he says, you persecute my bride, you persecute my body, you persecute me. No distinction. Jesus Christ revealed himself to Saul. Saul saw that for what it is. That's what salvation is about. It's seeing the glory of Jesus Christ, that he died for me, that he was sent from heaven to take my place, to be my righteousness, to be my substitute, to be my source of justification, to be the power in which I am being sanctified. That's what salvation is. Which means salvation is not being able to explain how God created the cosmos in in intimate detail. Salvation is not having an airtight answer for all of the evil in the world. Salvation is not knowing how God's control and human will connect to one another. Salvation is not having all of our mess cleaned up. Salvation is not being perfect or happy all of the time. Now, make no mistake, all of those can be great things. But that's not what salvation is. That might be a product later of salvation. It could be the fruit of salvation. Salvation is knowing that I have rebelled against my creator and because of that I rightly deserve punishment. Punishment is death. But God gives what he requires. He gives life through his son Jesus Christ who came and died in my place. He gives us his rightness or his righteousness. And the way we access this life-changing exchange, our death for Jesus' righteousness is by faith. It's by trusting in the work of Jesus for you and for me. So the question becomes then this morning, what is keeping you from that? If salvation doesn't mean having all of the answers figured out or having all of your junk cleaned up or being perfect or having a good background, Saul had a horrible one by the way, then what's keeping you? And you know what I found, and maybe this doesn't apply to any of you, you know what I found in Dayton, Ohio? A lot of times what keeps people from trusting in Jesus Christ is the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? So let's flip back to Philippians chapter three. Let's kind of end in this way. Look at verse eight. Saul has just recounted all of the things that people put their trust in that he could have put his trust in but doesn't. Verse seven, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse eight, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So is it worth it, Saul or Paul? Is being a Christian worth it? What makes it worth it? And here Paul says what makes it worth it. And it's not a what, it's a who. Look again at verse 8. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of having a church family. No. The surpassing worth of feeling good about my life. No. The surpassing worth of having my best life now. No. The surpassing worth of going to heaven. No. Even more than that, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's the relationship. It's in salvation, the primary thing we get is Christ. We get a who, not a what. And Paul says it like this. My Ivy League education, worthless. My Forbes 500 career, trash. What other people think of me, insignificant. My prospects of success in the future, unimportant. Compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If we were to summarize what he says, is, I would do it in this way. I have lost everything because of Christ, but I look at that not as a sacrifice, but as a streamlining, as a getting rid of unnecessary baggage that distracts me from standing before God with only the righteousness of Jesus as my resume. And that even if God wills that I die physically in the pursuit of Jesus, I will gladly trade the hazy joys of this life for the amazing glory of life with Jesus forever. You see, friends, God only saves one kind of people, those who don't deserve it. So, would you turn to him this morning? Would you trust in him this morning? And if you are saved, would you kind of take a spiritual inventory? Would you take stock? We were encouraged to do that throughout the liturgy of this morning, to take stock of where I am, to be reminded that I'm not saved on the basis of my merit, of my good works, of of my efforts to try to achieve something. My hope is Jesus Christ. Would you pray that the Lord would do that in someone else's life? And then would you be committed to being a part of of a church, connected to a church, invested in a church, engaged in the work of the church that exists as a parable to present that truth to a world that needs to see. The church is essentially a billboard saying, we are a bunch of people who, who have no merit to be saved. We are a bunch of people who have no merit to be made right with God apart from Jesus Christ. And we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to his glory alone. And therefore, welcome. Come. Revelation, at the end of Revelation, we have this beautiful picture. It's a picture of the church. The spirit and the bride say, come. It's the church's job. Come, drink of the living water found in Jesus Christ. Come, if you're thirsty, come and have life. It's the amazing glory of the church, and it's why the church is so significant, because the church is that picture to the world of the gospel. As we present it, as we preach it, 
as we proclaim it. Just stand with me, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the truth of your word. Father, it is amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. There is not a one of us whose merit will mean anything in light of eternity. But it's only Jesus. And therefore, Father, as we as we live this Christian life, as we walk in obedience and joy, as we, as we seek to be Matthew 28 Christians who are about the work of evangelism, as we're looking and praying for opportunities to have gospel conversations with our coworkers and our friends and our classmates, our family members, our neighbors, Father God, I pray that you would use us as your hands and feet you would use us as your church, that we would not look at anyone and think they're, they're, they're so far from Christ. They're so far away from being saved. But Father, we would trust in you that we would be reminded that you specialize in the work of saving those who in our opinion seem to be so far away from salvation. So give us a boldness. Give us a courage that we might preach, that we might pray, that we might live truth of the gospel you would continue to not unite us together I pray for this church father I pray for pastor Cody for the other leaders father I pray that you would continue to bless the work that you began years ago here you're continuing to do and you're continuing to build upon that foundation father God I pray that this church would be a beacon would be a city on a hill Fredericksburg area and, and really this, this whole region that when people look and say well, well why is it that all of these diverse people of all different backgrounds and thoughts and beliefs and ideas about politics and the world and why are they together why are they united it might be because of the gospel it might be united in truth around your word, that that, might, that vision might be so compelling that, that just as your son Jesus prayed and shortly before his arrest, crucifixion, that you would bring unity to this local church and all local churches, our local church back in Centerville, that we might accurately and adequately demonstrate your glory to a world that needs to see. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name.